G'day guys, welcome to episode 196 of Talking With TK. I'm your host, Tristan Connell, a Wallabies legend in the house today, in Matty Giddo. Been wanting to get Matty on the show for a little while now. He's uh, someone that I've really admired for a long, long time, from his days at the Brumbies, and then obviously with the Wallabies, and also at Toulon as well. So he's a great player. He's got a league background, actually, so his dad actually played for the Canberra Raiders, East, Wests, and someone else doesn't come to mind at the moment, but yeah, so he's got a rugby league background, so plenty of stories to share from that, from Maddie as well, so looking forward to this this episode today. Today's episode is brought to you by Manscaped, so check out the range at manscaped.com, use code TK for, for a free shipping and also 20% off. My book also, Talking With Champions, that's out now, you'll find it at Booktopia, Angus and Robinson or Dimmicks, and it's called Talking With champions just a big shout out to everyone that's been leaving reviews really appreciate that you can do that either by apple podcast or just jump on the facebook page uh, if you want to connect with me facebook or twitter i'm at talking with tk instagram i'm at tristan now or old school email tristan at talking with tk.com lots of people getting in touch so love to hear from where you're listening to the show any guest requests for next year or just simple chat in general always always really happy to have a yarn with everyone that gets in touch i am part of the diamond tina podcast network so check out some of my stable mates and that includes the likes of batuta advocate you know half cast podcast dylan friends whole heap of ones on there something for everyone really proud to be part of the diamond tina team so check it out diamond tina podcast network all right guys excited for today's episode and i introduce matt giddo All right, guys, my special guest today is Matt Giddo. Matt is one of the legends of Australian rugby. He's captain 102 tests, which started with his debut for the Wallabies in 2002 against England. He's also played in three World Cups in 2003, 07, and 2015. His wonderful career has taken him right around the world, started in Australia for the ACT Brumbies, took him to the Western Force before moving to Toulon in France, and most recently, Santori in Japan. A welcome to the potty, Matty Giddo. Matty, welcome, buddy. Cheers. Thank you. It's good to be here. Mate, first things first, we'll start on a bit of a funny note because, mate, for me, I know that your dad played first grade footy at East, West and Canberra. What I didn't know was he was a goal kicker. Now, you've got a very, very talented family. Your sister's a dual international. Obviously, yourself, you're a goal kicker. Now, I need to know, either a Christmas Day or Boxing Day, was there a drunken kickoff to decide who's the best kicker in the Guido family? Oh, there's plenty. Um, I don't know if they were drunk or not. Like, I suppose Dad would have had a, a few under his belt. Um, yeah, he was one. Like, I think the biggest thing, even it could have been, even when I went to the Brums, when I was playing at the Brumbies, so what was that, 2003, 2004, he was still kicking and active before his, his knees gave up on him. Yeah. But as long as we stayed within the 15-metre channel, like he was pretty pretty bang on. So um, Was he a tope? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't like to. No, first one of the first round of corners. And was he right-footed? Right-footed, but just hit them ugly. Like they wouldn't spin, they wouldn't rotate properly. They'd be all over the place, like a mongrel kick, but he'd always get the points. So even when I was kicking with him, he, he just digs it down. Um, he doesn't like kicking off the tees. That's more of a modern thing. Yeah, for sure. Which is the stands kind of the go. Which the sound for me was the best when I was playing league as well. I reckon that was uh, – I think it was a mental thing, Matty, like the thing, you know, the funness of actually kicking off the sand and building it. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, you, well, I suppose it gives you something else to to distract you and, and focus back into the game. But um, I remember Dave Ferner, I had a kick with him when he was at the Raiders. Yeah. Because um, I kicked up with him, uh, could have been later in his career, but he used to babysit us mm. uh, when Dad was playing for the Raiders because Don Ferner was the coach. Yeah, got you. Um, and I remember Dave um, went for a kick with him once and he just showed me how you build it up and he always used to put a hole in the sand. Yep. And for whatever reason, that just refocused him. Um, and I love that. That used to be my go. And then once the tees came in, you've had to try and find a, a new way to go. Yeah. But, uh, I got a little, little bit off track there. but That's all right, mate. That's what podcasts are all about. But, mate, Dave Ferner, he was yeah. – when you consider that he played forwards – the amount of workload he would have had to done, and then he would have been stuffed kicking some of those goals. Like, it was remarkable, some of his kicking. Yeah, yeah, and um, just a good bloke. Like, I think when you're young and you see, like, how big he, and strong he was, um, mm. just down to earth, like, I even think about it now, like, the fact that he'd take his time out when he was playing professional just to go and kick with me at Seaford, um, 
like just just a good bloke. Um, and yeah, as you say, like phenomenal player. I reckon the Raiders around that that era, yeah, you ninety four, ninety five. It's almost like the Chicago Bulls, yeah, um, in America. You know what it meant to to the Canberra people here. Absolutely. Did you go to heaps of games back then? Um, I didn't go to a lot. You'd obviously watch them. Mm. Uh, I think tickets were were pretty tight. Um, I think they played at Seaford. Maybe were they playing at Seaford at that time for a little while, sure. and then they switched to Bruce um, when it got built. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't go to a lot of the games, but used to watch a lot of them as well. Like you know, as as much as I could. Like leagues, my sport. It was the one that I I love the most. It's still probably the one that I enjoy watching the most. Yeah, mate. When you were growing up, because obviously you were, you were footy or rugby league player before you were a union player. What position did you play in league? Started off in the centres. Yep. Um, then as people got older and I stayed smaller, I was shuffled into 5'8", halfback. And then my last game, uh, I was hooker. And my brother was halfback. I was playing, um, dad was coach, uh, playing for Quimian. Uh, yeah, moved to hooker. So that was that was when I knew it was time to get out of there. <laughs> I tried to have a think about professionally because I know the West Tigers went after you and I'm sure there was plenty of other interest from rugby league clubs during your career. But trying to think about what position would best suit you and I was thinking probably you kind of remind me of a mix of Preston Campbell and Ben Barber. So I think fullback actually might have been your go. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I, I was lucky enough to play with Benny in uh, Toulon for a short period. Yeah. He's electric. Mm. Like, I mean, to compare me with them automatically, I feel like I'm not going to be playing first grade as soon as you say that. <laughs> You're being um, humble, mate. You've got plenty of skill. No, it's uh, – yeah, I mean, it's a sport I love and I don't know, like, professionally where, I, if I was to play first grade, what position I'd play. I think at the time when I was coming through league, um, a lot of the focus was on big boys, mm. um, like the bigger, stronger um, players, not so much the, the skill at the time. And I felt like I was just getting moved to the side, which I still, you know, I didn't feel like I deserved to be there. Uh, but it was just luckily enough for me that, Rugby picked me up and I was able to make a few sides and yeah. that kind of moved my focus onto rugby. Yeah, I think this kind of period we're seeing in rugby league now, you know, with the new rules, lower interchange, it's really bringing back that small man. So it's one of those things that if this was 10 years ago, it might have made sense for you to switch when it was, you know, back then there was a lot more interchange. Like you just mentioned, plays were a lot bigger, rules were different. I think if you actually did it mm. right now, if you were back and being 25, it actually would suit you right now. Yeah. Yeah, potentially. I mean, you still – I still watch the game. It's fast and um, to even put yourself in that position, I, I don't know. I just – I couldn't do it. I, I just – I think because I've got so much respect for league and I never played it professionally that I hold it on a really high pedestal, which mm. it probably should be. But for me, it's just something that I've never really um, considered I'd be able to play professionally. Yeah. Matt, when did the – you know, you're famous for wearing the headgear. When did that start? Started when I was really young. Um, I love Steve Renoff. Yeah, okay. He, um, the pearl. So he, yeah, he had the headgear. Um, yeah, he's just a good player, small, quick. Uh, you know, they were winning titles at the time. And I think also mum, because I was small, mum uh, got me one. It wasn't the same as Steve Renoff's because we couldn't, couldn't find that one. I just had like a different one, different headgear. Uh, mum said, if you wear this, um, it'll make you stronger and um, like told me all these things that it would do to make me play better. And I, I just wore it with a lot more confidence. Yep. And then from there, uh, just kept playing with it year after year. And any time, even if training, we'd start to go into a contact drill mm. and I didn't have my headgear, I'd feel almost naked like I wasn't the same player, like a bit of an imposter. Yeah. Uh, but as soon as I put the headgear on, I, I felt a sense of confidence. Okay. Did you? So that's kind of how it started and then I just stuck with it. Did you ever play a professional game without it? Sevens. Sevens, uh, when I was on the Australian circuit, like the, the world circuit for Australian sevens, I just, playing through summer, just could not, it was way too hot to be playing sevens in Hong Kong and yeah. Singapore, these really humid places with the headgear. So that was, that's the only professional time that I've, um, I think I've played without the headgear. Okay, interesting. Now, mate, your journey into rugby unions, you know, started really late. And it was because of a change of schools, correct? Yep. Yeah. So, mate, what, what yes, was I, it? Did you get in the, um, a wrong crowd or something like that? Why did you change schools? 
Yeah, well, mum and dad thought uh, I was going to Queen Mian South, um, just a local school here, um, just outside of Canberra. And yeah, I was just, my grades were starting to slip, and my parents thought that I was a lot smarter than what my grades were suggesting. Like I was getting seized, uh, and they thought that I, you know, I should have done better. They didn't like the crowd that I was hanging with. I was starting to get in trouble. So my parents moved me to private school in, in Canberra. Yep. And the rules at the school were if you played league on a Sunday, that's because the school didn't offer league, but yep. if you played league for outside of the school, that you had to play rugby for the school. It was a way of them recruiting all the leagueies yep. um, that, that went to the school. And that was how I got into it. I okay. couldn't, didn't enjoy the sport for the first couple of years, couldn't understand, like, from a scrum at those points, like, when I first started, you could stand at the number eight feet, like the back of the scrum. Yep. Whereas in league, you usually, you get five, 10 metres back, just small things. Being able to kick out in the full, only inside your 22, like just stuff I couldn't get my head around. I thought it was a a pretty ordinary game and I just did what the school made me do on a Saturday and then on Sunday I got to enjoy my league. Yeah, at school, we were in the first 15. Yep. Yeah, yeah, so... Um, I was in the first, so you have your A, Bs, like through your normal mm. uh, age groups. But yep. as you go along at our school, the first 15 wore a different jersey. Okay. And they could casually sometimes wear it around the school. And you'd be looking at them going, like, look at these rock stars. Yeah, cool. Because they were, like, they got special treatment. <laughs> yeah. And then the longer I stayed at um, at the school, like I wanted not so much to be a rock star, but you, you, you looked up to these guys. It was someone you know, that you wanted to be when you are in year 12. Yeah. Um, and then when I got to year 12, the, the coach said, you can play first 15, but you've got to give up league. Mm. And then that's what happened. I gave up league and that was it. Yeah. Was it a huge decision to actually give it up? Um, well, not at the time because at the time um, I wasn't – not that this local – not that my first 15 team was a rep team, yeah. but to me it kind of was. Like you, you, you picked it, you selected to play for this – special squad and and rugby league as I said before I was starting to get shifted across because I was a bit smaller yeah you know I hadn't matured and just all everyone was bigger and stronger than me at the time so it just wasn't as enjoyable because I was getting less time um, I was getting used left less within a game so I just felt I could add more value with rugby so it was a pretty easy decision yeah did Matty Hendrick also go to your school Yep. Yeah, yeah, he was a year above me. Okay, so he so, was the nine before. So Matty was, uh, yeah, I used to bench for Matty. And then there'd be times he'd say, do you want to get on? Uh, I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to get on. Or other times, if it's an easy game, I'll say, yeah, yeah, get on. And he'll say he's cramping or he'd look after me that way. Yeah, what'd you learn from Matty back then? Nothing good. Never learned anything good from Matty. He, uh, he, um, I suppose, um, he, he would always just cruise like you'd turn up to a game pretty relaxed. I suppose I'd learnt that you don't need to be super focused on game day to have a blinder. Like for me, I because I'm small, like as you get closer to a game, I get a bit more nervous and I start to go into almost like a war mode. Like yeah, okay. these guys are going to kill me if I'm not fully switched on to make my tackles. They're going to point me out because I'm small. If I'm not making my tackles early, then everyone's going to come at me. Yep. So I used to build it up a bit more. Okay. Um, so I learn off Maddie just to relax and uh, still treat it like a game. Yeah. What about during your professional career? Much nerves at all? Early on, yeah, a lot. Yeah. Um, probably if we were playing on a Saturday, by Thursday, we'd have that execution session. And then from there, I'd go home and I'm almost in my game mode. Like, yeah. I'd go back, just chill, talk. My parents could just tell. They just they would even tell me now, like, I'd just go quiet. Then the next day, you've got your captain's run at the stadium, go out. Do that, goal kick, and the same. I just go home into my room, come out, eat into my room. Like it's just because I knew I was small, and and at the time there were big centers at, uh, mm. in Super Rugby. Every center was big. I was probably one of the small first small centers. The ball play as well with with the five eight. So yep. I just knew that I was going to be targeted on set piece. You know that first phase, I'd need to defend well, tackle well, almost overprove that because I'm small, I still belong here and I'd build that up in my head and it would, well, it worked for me, but it would probably, um, you know, fatigued me a little bit by the end yeah. of the season, trying to get up and 
really get going for that whole season. Yeah, Matt, some people have a fear of contact. Did you have to embrace, you know, you just spoke about that whole psychological part of it. Did you have to embrace it to be to be good on the field, mate? Um, there's never a fear of contact. There's a fear like once you're in that professional environment, you've been picked because you can, you know, you, you can play, I think, and you don't have too many fears. My biggest fear was like I think any good sports people that you talk to is that fear of failure yeah. or letting your teammates down. Um, that video session that you do on the Monday and they pick up where you let the team down because you didn't make your tackle. Um, and because I was small, I really wanted to um, just get my technique right. Yep. I'd review the opposition, how they'd step, or he catches the ball um, with no time, automatically he'll step off his right foot. So I know that if I'm close to him, he'll do that. Mm. Um, just really studying the players just to take any of their strengths out of it so my technique would help me because yeah. obviously I'm not going to be stronger than them um, or bigger. So I just just required a bit more research, but I was never really fearful of the contact, more just that fear of letting the team down and then obviously in the papers because then once you're in the papers for a bad game, then your parents don't like the the journalist, your brothers, everyone gets involved. So yeah. you kind of just want to play well for, for the family. Yeah, Matty, when you were at the Brumbies, you know, obviously a big outside backs, you know, Sterlo and the guys like that, was there any defensive drills like them going one after one after one at you, like any of that sort of stuff? Uh, no, because I think the coach obviously wanted to give me confidence as well. Yeah. But you would have your contact sessions. I think as a player, once you get to that point, if you've missed a few tackles, you know, okay, I need I need some work. Um, but because I had legends around me, I didn't want to let them down. Yeah. I didn't want them to think any less of me. So, you know, I, I would focus on my defence. That was my – before a game, that was all I would review, look at how the opposition attack, how I'm going to defend. Because once we had the ball, I felt um, – like I didn't need to be as prepared. Like the the attacking side of things came a bit more naturally. Okay. But in two thousand four, we had when we won it, we had Dean Pay as the defence coach. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And he would do that. He would have the forwards and backs, um, and you just mix them around, and it would be exactly that five meter channel. Okay, throw him the ball. Like he yeah. he liked to bring that league mentality. All right, we're all just going to get stuck in, and the drill would just be 10, 15 minutes. But it was intense. I can imagine, man. Yeah, and I got a lot of confidence off him. Like after a game, he'd say, "Man, good defense. I was really good." And because I've always looked up to the league, is I'll be like, "Oh wow, league just gave me a rap, but nice. I must be defending well." Yeah. So it's a big focus of mine. Definitely. Now, Maddie, one of the best things I've found in ISO, mate, has been your impressions of Eddie Jones. Now, you nearly do it better than Eddie. Like you know, you've become better than Eddie. But tell me, because he's picked yeah. you out of the, the sevens team, right? Tell me about the first time that you've met Eddie Jones. First time I – well, I don't even remember really meeting him. He, he came to training um, at one of our sevens training sessions and he was the Wallabies coach and he just pulled us uh, – like he was just standing there. We'd still do our normal drills uh, and he would just watch. But you knew the intensity of the session was up because he was there. Yep. I can't really remember – what I did, what the team did, but I know after the training session we had Glenn Eller, who was the backs coach at the time, yeah. but also uh, the sevens assistant coach. Okay. And he said, mate, you're, you're on the Wallabies radar. I was like, what? Yeah. He said, well, I think you might get picked on the end of season tour. He said, just keep working hard in the sevens, and that was it. I didn't have a super contract, nothing. So I just thought that was crazy, like that I even considered that way. And then as the season went, by the end of the year, um, I was lucky enough to go on the tour. So it was, yeah, I mean, really lucky. And then off the back of that, I signed a, a Super Rugby deal with the Brumbies. Yeah, you know, you spoke about not having that deal. Now, was Sevens kind of like a gap year for you? Like, did you decide were you going to do something career-wise? I was at uni at the time. Okay, what were you studying? So I was studying PE teaching. Okay. Which... I mean, I reckon when you finish school, you should have a year to decide what you want to do. But while mm. you're in school, they make you decide what you want to do. I didn't know, and my brother was a PE teacher. So I was like, okay, well, I'll be a PE teacher. Yeah. So that's what I started to study. Uh, with the sevens, you're given $500 for the two tournaments for two weeks okay. to go away, which you then got taxed on. 
So not much mum and dad used to have to give me money to, to go away to enjoy myself. Um, but yeah, I, it was, I was still studying at the time. Uh, I didn't even consider rugby because I'm getting 500 a fortnight. I didn't even consider rugby or 500 a fortnight, but you would only go six tournaments a year. Like you go away for six stages. So it wasn't like you were getting 500 every fortnight. Um, but because of that, I never considered rugby. Okay. And then through that, got picked on the Wallabies. I think after tax, we might have got 25000 for that tour. And I was like, oh, mate. Nice. What did you get? Yeah. Did you get a car? No, um, no, I didn't. I don't think my old man even let me spend it. Nice. I think he just said, hang on to it, and which my dad, he's always been um, pretty grounded that way and mm. he's always made me respect money and respect things and not just be frivolous with your, with your cash. So, yeah, I'm pretty lucky. Yeah, mate. But when you turned up for that Wallabies tour, you know, you're still contract, just coming off of sevens, you know, not even thinking about really playing rugby professionally still. When you rock up to that mm. airport to go overseas with the boys, looking around all these legends, what's your thought process? Don't stuff up. Don't embarrass yourself. Yeah. Um, the, the, the hard part for me was um, I didn't even know the people from my area, okay. like so from Canberra. So usually you've got your own super rugby players that you're with yep. and so you've got maybe six or seven mates if you're picked in a Wallaby squad for the first time that you can bounce off or talk to. I didn't know that. Yeah. Like all these legends from Canberra I'd never trained with, um, never um, spoken to. So – yeah, I'm getting – like even George Gregan, he'd just say, like, how you going? And I was like, yeah, good. Like just – it was just – yeah, it was really um, – I mean, they were great, but it was just me. I was just just quiet, insecure, just trying to be respectful. Um, and my first roomie was Wendell Saylor. Oh, wow. The, first, the big deal. So, yeah, big deal. <laughs> um, and he'd be partying and – like not partying, but he'd be dancing, he's up and – I didn't even feel like I wanted to get up, but you got to get up because it's a big deal. He said, people pay to do this. People pay to be in a room with me. He said, how lucky you are. And I was just like, yeah, 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 real lucky. Yeah, thanks for, almost thanks for having me kind of thing. Yeah. Did he but, give you a nickname? Like, what was your nickname in the room? Nah, he's nah. just third person. You know Del, like he's like big Del, he talks about himself. So it's like me, he always has a saying, he just say, oh, I'm sick of talking about me. Why don't you talk about me? Like whenever we're in the room, it's just kind of the way he is. Um, but having Dell as my roomie was was good because he's so outgoing, and he'd always be up for going to dinners and mm. uh, hanging with different boys that he'd bring me along. Okay, uh, and it helped me kind of get to know the boys and you know feel comfortable, which I kind of didn't feel until maybe the last week of a five week tour. Yep. Are there some good bonding sessions on there, Matty? There, yeah, well, there was um, more so than now. I think yeah. we had a lot of players from the amateur days. So when you get into a new country, that first night um, you just stay up. Yeah. You go out, have drinks, you hang with each other, and then the next day, all that they ask is you turn up and you do. I think we might have played basketball or some some type of activity, yep. but you just can't sleep. Stay awake, stay active, and then you're in the zone. So it was always that first time that we got to a new country you'd have a few drinks yep court sessions like court sessions were still around after a test match on a saturday the next day on a sunday we'd all get together for half an hour you tell stories anything that someone did wrong um you know you're sculling or it was just a totally different environment but really good like great for me to get to get comfortable and and get to see the guys away from rugby yeah the good old days mate now mate your test debut against england how does Eddie tell you that you're going to actually be playing? I don't remember. Um, I don't remember. That whole tour, everything was like a bit blur. of a blur. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think I sat on the bench. I did. I sat on the bench against Ireland the week before. Mm. Um, we might have lost. Dan Herbert, I think, was the outside centre. He got injured. Um, they might have moved Matt Burke to 13. or Anyway, I can't really remember. But I sat on the bench against Ireland. Uh, didn't get on. Yep. Then my parents tried to get over for Ireland, but they couldn't, like they'd booked too late by the time I found out. Uh, they got there in time for the England game. Yep. Um, yeah, and I got on, played eight minutes, I think. At the time, Eddie Jones had a system 
for everything good you did, you got plus one. <laughs> everything bad you did, minus one. So you missed a tackle, minus one. Drop a ball, minus one. Bad kick. I ended the game. I still got the record. In eight minutes, I ended up minus four. <laughs> and we, um, when I went on, we were down 32, 31. I didn't help us. We didn't have a chance. We ended up losing by one. Um, you know, tough introduction, but you know, I suppose now, as far as making your test debuts go, yep. Twickenham's got to be right up there. Yeah. How did you feel? Because, you know, coming through the ranks, you're a nine. And then, you know, obviously you shifted around between 10 and also inside centre for a lot of your career. Did you actually have a preferred position? Yeah, I'd say inside centre Okay. for me. Um, I think when I was at inside centre and Stephen Larkin moved on, it was just like the natural transition where they moved me into 10. Yeah. Um, but I think now reflecting on it and, um, yeah, I just reckon that inside centre was probably my, my position. You know, if you had a big 15, like a big fullback, um, that didn't compromise our carrying ability. Yep. I think playing inside centre was probably – that was my best position. Yeah, I think that is still the beautiful part of rugby, the fact that you and Sonny Bill Williams play the same position. But yeah. you're totally different players, totally different size. But that's a beauty because you can change up game plans. And then there's a structure. Like, I used to love watching the Brumbies because you and Larkham, it used to be like watching a rugby league game because you have two playmakers. Mm. So that was a beauty that kind of brought that attraction of – people from outside of sport into your sport. Yeah. And I think that's something, I don't know if it's missing, but it's not something that I've seen for a little while, especially not in union for a little while in, in Australian rugby. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, um, I mean, we've still got, you've still got the two ball players. It's just, I'm not sure at the moment, like, um, yeah, it just doesn't seem to be popular, even with my kids. Um they'll come home and they want to talk about rugby league or AFL because you're seeing a lot more of it on TV or in the papers, um, which is sad because I'd love oh, – I don't care as long as the kids play sport, but I'd love rugby to be popular again. Yeah. Now, I'm not sure what the answer is, but I think the players are still as talented, if not more talented. Um, it's just – I think now at the moment too, it's it's just a tough climate with COVID and everything else. Yeah. Mate, I started your career, you know, you're very lucky – you come through a golden period of Brumbies rugby, that culture, that winning culture. It's just ingrained in them. Who was that person in that squad that really just held that that culture to a you know a bit of a standard? George Gregan, yep. I think. I mean, there were so many legends there that contributed to off-field and even on-field standards. But I think as far as on-field goes, your, your recovery, making sure you knew your game plan, mm. I reckon everyone was accountable to George. He just had this look. Um, he didn't need to say anything, but he'd just give you the stare, um, and you just knew, oh, gee, I've done done something wrong. It was even there was one time at, uh, throughout the uh, um, at training, I was in this one position. And he said, "I want you here. I'll hit you flat, and then you play at the back." I said, "Okay, no worries." I said, "Here." He said, "No, not there. Come here." I said, "Here." He said, "Yep, there, perfect." Got to the game. I was in that position. He's thrown one at my toes. Yeah, and. And, like, I was in the right position. And he said, I want you flatter. And he's just looking at me and I'm just walking back like, what can I do here? But he he just kept everyone on uh, on edge. Like, he, he he would give you confidence. But if you didn't do your job right, he just would – he just kept his standards were just every day strong. And he would just make sure that no one slipped. You never got comfortable. Um I think having him in the team, no matter where the game was at, if it was in the balance or we were ahead by plenty, having him in the team, you always thought you were going to win. You always believed you were going to win. Yep. And I think that was the biggest difference from when I first started at the Brumbies to then when we finished, <clears throat> when I finished there in 2011, uh, you could see that culture shift and mm. there were times you were hopeful you were going to win. You're in the game, you're going to do everything you can to close it out, but you just believed when you had George and those guys there that, you would close it out. Yeah, got you. Now, Maddie, you know, the rivalry with the Crusaders was huge. And obviously you guys hosted them yeah. for a grand final. How did you feel like, you know, after being a sevens player into the Australian squad to now playing Super Rugby finals? How did you approach that first that first final for yourself? Um, without sounding like arrogant, it, it, um, it seemed normal. Mm. Like for me, ever since, I, as you said, I came into a good era, the golden era where, uh, 2003, um, I was into the, that was my first World Cup. We made it to the final. 
Um, before that, we were beating New Zealand. I think it was one all. We beat South Africa um, in those Tri Nations at the time. Yep. It was just the Brumbies were always winning. Like the year before, we won. We made the semis, and they considered that a failure. Like we were in the semis, and they said that wasn't good enough. This is what we got to do to get better for next year. Yep. And then we were winning. It, it just seemed that at the Brumbies, that's what we do. We win. Um, so when we won the semi final and we're in the final, it wasn't, I don't know, it was a big game, but you're surrounded by these guys. You just believe that you'd win. Um, these legends that have won World Cups, they've won Super Rugby titles already. I just believe that because they've done that, why, why aren't we going to do it again? Yeah. And I think we just had a really strong belief at the time. And, yeah, it worked out. Like We won, but, yeah, I think having those those guys around and the confidence that they brought uh, made a difference to us. Yeah, during those years, but Bruce Stadium was packed. You know, that's that's Canberra yeah. Raiders' home ground. Did it kind of feel cool that you know capacity crowds? You're killing it on the field at, at your team's ground, pretty much. Well, it was the Brumbies have been popular for a few years because I remember in 2000 when I was in year 12 on your Friday night, like you go to school and you say, "I'll meet you at Bruce Stadium." Yeah, it was almost like the cool place to be. Yep. Um, so. Like, I, it didn't seem any different to me four years later. It was still popular. It was still what people would do. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was still cool. Like, you, when you go there, um, I'm from Canberra, so I'm really proud to play there, play for the Brumbies, um, you know, to win a title. I think everyone – the good thing about Canberra, the beauty of Canberra, is if you walked around that stadium that was packed, yeah. you could pick out 100, 200 people that you probably know well. So that that's the beauty of uh, you know playing in Canberra. Yeah, did all the boys hit you up for tickets and that? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think um, I think I sorted most of them out. I had to do the family first, and <laughs> yeah, I mean back in the day, it was a bit easier to get the tickets, especially when you're playing. I think a lot of that stuff, even you know boots and whatnot, um, it was just popular rugby. So we had stash and kit and things that you could give out to the boys. Yeah, yeah, mate. Take me to a very special relationship, the one that you've got with Drew Mitchell, your bromance. When did this begin? Yeah. First time uh, I met Drew properly, I gave him the Rookie of the Year Award 2004. Okay. Um, and we had a few drinks. Uh, he's pretty good value. What I like about Drew is the first time that you – well, if you go into a room and you don't know anyone, and generally I'm a bit of a shy guy, like it takes me a while to um, get tight with yep. people, and then once I'm tight, then then I'm I'm good to go. Whereas Drew will come in and dominate a room from the start, and it just always makes me feel really relaxed and comfortable because he can make the end of himself while I scope the room out. Yeah, so the the odd couple and from, from early age. Yeah, yeah, like. It, uh, even times, I'd be in France and um, Drew was injured at the time. I went to, we'd go away to play a game for Toulon and I'd FaceTime uh, my wife. Drew's at home having cocktails with her, right? <laughs> and, and it doesn't bother me. Yeah. So I think that's when you know you've got a good mate. Mate, I love the picture of, of Instagram of you two with the newborn. <laughs> oh, yeah, we finally got our girl. Yeah, we're, we're a few beers deep when we when we threw that up there. So, um yeah, he, he came down. He was on his way to the snow doing his own little podcast. So it was good just to, um, yeah, have him here. And the boys love him as well because, you know, we spent so much time in France where it was just us, you know, including Drew. He's part of the family. So yep. it was just us with the kids and, you know, they're really comfy with him. He's comfortable telling them not to do things, you know, behave, put that up, pick this up. Um, so it's good. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's nice. But how good, mate, you got backline wines now. Bloody winery with your, your yeah. best mate. How good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we started that up, which is really um, all I've ever done since I left school is rugby. Mm. So it's good to talk about and learn something different um, other than rugby. So we got an opportunity to link up with, with Ben Riggs. Yep. Um, he's got a winery in South Australia. Yeah, backline wine. So we just released a premium Shiraz last week. So it's exciting. It's good. We got a. Uh, Cab Bland, Shiraz, Normal Shiraz, Premium Shiraz, um, and a Rosé. So, no, I like the yeah, names the as premium well. Shiraz probably. Yeah. A couple of the names you've like put backline, well, one of my backline, Try Time, and just little different things 
to kind of associate you three with your rugby career, but then also your love of wines. Yeah, well, one of them uh, is is the Block Raiders, which is that's the just one. Yeah, that's that we one. used to run. Yep. Um, there's uh, Jeffe, which in French means I do. Yep. Um, and that's because Drew married off Adam Ashley Cooper, who's the other guy that uh, it's myself, Adam Ashley yep. Cooper, and Drew that are in the in the wines. Uh, and then Pilu Pilu is a rosé, yep. which is the war cry when we were at Toulon. And then our latest one, which I think is pretty cool, is the two nine five. So it's all of our test caps together okay. added up yep. equals two nine five between the three of us. Uh, I think there's a thousand and seventy eight bottles. Wow! Which uh, like, so limited limited um, edition there, and that's actually the amount of test points that we've got between us as well. So it's kind of always something there that's marrying it up. Uh, which I think is pretty cool, um, but we're also trying to let the wine speak for himself and not get yep. too rugby, you know, a bit where it's a bit gimmicky. Yeah, so we're yeah. trying to keep Just it get balance. as natural yeah. as possible. Mate, yeah. you got me intrigued. What's a block raider like on the field? What, what is a block raider? Uh, block raider, you see a lot of the shape um, with the league um, where you've got your ball player here, then you've got your two runners. Mm. The outside runner leads. Okay. The middle runner goes behind. Gotcha. He gets the ball in behind, and a raider is an inside ball. So it's, it's virtually like an so X sort be of a, thing. Yes, yeah, so you've got these three, and then a blind winger back here. Yep. The ball player carry it up. This guy goes short, one well, out, the back, out the back, and then yep. your winger will just trail on the inside. Perfect. And I'm, I'm assuming yeah, so you're, the ball, you're the ball player putting these two over for tries. I was a ball player for one. Uh, Adam came short, drew around the raiders line, and scored uh, against South Africa. I think for the first time that we won in uh, at the Highveld in Bloemfontein. Nice. In like 50 years or something. So there's a bit of history to it. Yeah. How many times did you boys play in the same starting team over the years? Oh, gee, I'm not sure. Um, maybe. What's Drew? Drew's got 70, 73, maybe 72 caps. Yeah. He would have started maybe 40 of them, maybe. Could yeah. have been 40 of us together, I think. But in a perfect world, I was lucky. You would be inside, Adam would be outside, and then Drewy on the wing, right? Uh, yeah, mate. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, or maybe even Coop could be. Yeah, I always thought Coop always played his best games on the wing as well. Okay, you know when he was at uh, the Wallabies early on. Well, he's a good finisher, I isn't think, he? So, well, yeah, I, I think you never get a bad game out of Coop. Mm. Whereas you'll get an outstanding game out of Drew, but you'll get a bad game. Definitely. Now, Matty, you played in three World Cups. You know, 2003, you're a baby. 2015, you're a vet. What was the different, like for you, approaching each and the enjoyment factor of each? Is there much comparison? Yeah, I think 2003, like I said before, I, it's just what happened. I, at that point, I was getting picked in the teams and we're playing and mm. popular, we're winning. Um, I don't think I really understood um how big the event was. And then 2015, uh, I didn't think I was going to play for the Wallabies again because I'd left for France in 2011 after getting cut from the Wallabies. Yep. Um, and at the time, if you go overseas, you couldn't play for the Wallabies. Mm. I was lucky enough to – there were a couple of rule changes. Uh, I got the opportunity to play. And it was the first time my kids could actually see me play for the Wallabies as well. Nice. So I just think I enjoyed it and I appreciate it a lot more because – I've worked a lot harder to get that opportunity back, mm. whereas early on things were coming to you without realising what you got or how hard you had to work to get there. So uh, not that I took it for granted, but I just think the significance of playing for your country and playing at a World Cup yep. was lost on me a bit. Yeah, we'll, we'll touch on it in a little bit more. In 2011, when you didn't make the, the Wallabies team, all the stuff that happened with Robbie Deans, how much did that hurt you? And then had you totally turned away from ever trying to represent Australia again? Uh, at the start of the year, I'd signed to go to France. Yeah. Um, because for 10 years, that was my 10th year where um, you just go super or you go preseason, mm. super rugby, uh, you try nations at the time, then you end a season tour. Then you got four weeks off. Same again, super your preseason, super rugby, tri nations, end of season tour. Four yep. weeks off, same again. So I've been doing that for, for ten years and I just want to change, want to experience something new. Uh, and France has always been something that intrigued me. You know, I love the love the country, love trying to learn a new language. 
Um, so I signed at the start of the year to do that, but that was fine because I wasn't leaving until after the World Cup. Uh, then when I didn't get picked for the World Cup, yep. that was when it hit me. I was like, oh, well, that's it. Um, my last game I didn't realise was my last game. Um, so, yeah, it didn't hurt me, but I just um, I was more upset at myself that I didn't appreciate it more, what I had at the time. Mm. I think I'd been fortunate enough throughout that 10-year period to get picked in Wallabies squads off the back of what I'd done previous years, not on my current form, yeah. like coaches that believed in me. So I, I don't hold anything against Robbie for picking a squad because I, I, I personally believe that you're going to pick the best team you can to be as successful as you can. And he, uh, he didn't see me in it. At the time, I didn't think that way. But now reflecting on it, you know, that's, I think it was just the way it was. He was a coach that saw value in other players and, yeah. Nice. But that 2015, when you come back in, when Czech brings you back in, you know, we all just saw the last dance. In your own mind, did you know that that was going to be kind of your last dance? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I didn't know that I'd make that. So when Czech asked me if I was interested, yeah. I said, yeah, like I would love to, but I said I haven't played test footy for four years. I don't know if I'm at that level because even though you play big games in Europe, it's not test footy. Yep. Um, and I didn't want to come back and let them down or compromise their prep for, for the World Cup. So I said after the uh, rugby championship, I said I'll play, a couple, I'll play those tests and I'll know if I'm not up to it. I said, but also if you see something that I don't and you don't feel like I'm up to it, don't bring me along for the ride. Yep. Um, those, even before I came back, I was looking up YouTube clips um, just to watch other old test matches that I played. And I was like, right, so I tackled there, I passed there, I kicked there. Maybe I could do this or yeah. can I do it? Like there's so much doubt. Um, but I think that fueled me as far as made me train harder, made me prepare even more um, for that test because I didn't know if I'd be up for it. Yeah. And I wanted to make sure that I did everything I could to be successful. Yeah. Was there and a, was there a moment? Well. Was there a moment that you knew you were back? Um, I think in the second half, the very first test, the second half, I got a ball, um, just and I made a line break, um, but I didn't finish it off. Like I threw this a bad ball to Izzy, um, but at the time I felt like okay, I can still compete at this level. Yeah. Um, then we played the All Blacks uh, two weeks later, I think, and we won the rugby championship. And I thought, you know, we're beating the the favourites for the World Cup at this point, and I'm competing, and I'm, um, you know, I'm holding my own. That. It'd be silly just to give it up just because of my insecurities or feel like I'm doing the country a disservice or check a disservice. So I just stuck it out. And if he picked me, he picked me. But I just said, I'm available. Nice. Mate, one thing that just comes to my mind, you're famous for your swan dive. What's the origins of the swan dive? Um, I can't remember. It could have been Jeremy Paul maybe. Okay. Uh, at one training session, like I uh, made a break and I just put the ball down like normally, and he said, mate, he said, that's what props do. And at the time, Jeremy Paul used to dive like a proper dive. Yeah. Um, and my first try for the Brumbies, I got an inside ball, I think, off Jeremy Paul. And uh, I did a, a swan dive. It didn't hurt. I landed it okay. And then from there, it just became a bit instinctive. Yeah. Did it ever go wrong? Like, Will you nearly knock yourself out? No, nah, no. Nah, you get it to a bit of a fine art. Like a lot of people can <laughs> – not jump high enough. If you don't commit and you hit your knees, you get that that bad little stump where it just doesn't look comfy and you land on your head. But if you just commit to it, make sure you land a bit of an arch, it just, no, it never really, well, luckily for me, it, I didn't score many, but when I did, it didn't come didn't come too bad. There you go. Mate, you know, you've had, you know, we've spoken about Eddie Jones, briefly about Michael Checker. In terms of you, your style, your personality both on and off the field. Was there a coach that you connected with the most? Um, no, for different reasons. You know, I think, um, you know, with, with Czech it was good because uh, I was a lot more senior um, mm. and it wasn't – I didn't know if I was going to play the World Cup. So leading into the rugby championship, I would voice um, – you know, concerns I'd have like with the team or any complaints from players, I would just pass it on to him yep. and just let him know how the group was going. Because if I got axed, well, at least I, I got dropped 
saying something that I believed in. Mm. So, you know, with Checo, I had a really good adult understanding. Um, Eddie Jones was just incredibly tough on me uh, where I never felt comfortable, which was probably what I needed to work hard and, and not feel like I'm the man, especially at those early stages. You can get caught in that. Uh, John Connolly was a great coach that I had as well. Yeah. But Knuckles, um, he, he believed in me. He... Um, he had a different approach, a more relaxed approach, which probably at that stage was nice after Eddie. Um, yeah, I, yeah, no, I, I think every coach I've had, they've always had different qualities. Yep. And I think for me, the, the, the best thing that I want from a coach is just honesty. Mm. So if you're doing something poor, then let you know. And while it's hard to take and you might be, oh, well, I did it because of this, or you think of excuses, you know deep down that they're probably right Mm. and it just makes you work harder. And then when they give you a compliment, I don't know, you just, when they're honest, there's just more of a a good feel and it's just a coach that I like to play for. I think if they're tough on me, I want to go out there and um, play as best I can for them. Yeah, for sure. Now, mate, you know, those gentlemen we just spoke about, you know, they've extensive knowledge that they've passed on to you. You've got a whole heap of games that you've played. Is coaching something that you would consider back end of career now? Mm, I don't know. There's so much work. Like you've got to work harder than the players. Mm. You get there early and you leave after. You're doing a lot of of work, a lot of review, and then when it's kickoff time, you've got no control. Yeah. I don't know if that control, having no control, would sit well with me. Yeah. I think it's an art that you've got to learn. Um, but even now, work it like playing club rugby. It's it's been good just passing on little tips and and I think if you know you're adding value and you're helping someone, yep. like that feels good for anyone, whatever work or whatever you're in. Uh, if you know you can help someone, you're adding value, then um, it does feel good. So I enjoy that side of things if I can add value. Yep. But um, I don't know. I, I really don't know if um, coaching something that that I could get into. Okay, food for thought. But, mate, take me to Toulon. We briefly touched on it before, but for someone that's from outside of France, so an import, how much pressure and expectation on you is coming into it, especially a team like Toulon? Mm. I think uh, if we didn't have Johnny Wilkinson, there would have been a lot more. Okay. He was the focal point. He was, you know, if the team wasn't going well, generally – probably would fall on him. Johnny, There's always yeah, that yeah, one yeah. guy that falls on. Yeah. So I was, and also for me, I, um, I wasn't guaranteed a start. So the coach that signed me, um, after he signed me at the start of the year, yep. he then got promoted to the French head job. Okay. And so Bernard not... Laporte came in. Yep. He used to be the old French coach. And he didn't want me there, but it was too late. I'd signed. Um, so I've arrived to Toulon to a new coach that didn't want me. I'd just been dropped from the Wallabies. Like I, I, I felt a bit like a, a fraud because the guy that they signed wasn't the one that turned up, yeah. in my opinion. Like okay. I was still the same player, but the fact that so many things had gone wrong in that period. Um, so I just turned up, you know, really just tail between the legs, just work hard, uh, learn the culture, learn the players, um, and just try to play the best footy I could. So... I already had a, like heaps of pressure on myself internally, so it didn't really matter, you know, what the public thought. Uh, luckily for me, that first year went really well. And in France, if you start well, mm. that's what they remember. So it doesn't matter how you finish. If that first couple of games you're going well, they're like, yeah, he he cares about our our little village and all that. So you kind of a lot of pressure off. Yeah, what's it like, kind of off the field with the fans and things like that? Are you able to go to coffee shops, nightclubs, bars, and that sort of stuff? You can you can get behind the bar, pour your own beers <laughs> if you're winning. Um, yeah, Toulon, it's a great town like that. You uh, you run the town if you're doing well. But at the same time, if you don't go well, they'll tell you why you didn't go well the next day when you're getting your baguettes. Or um, and they're entitled to it because it's not a it's not a real rich area, mm. but they pay a lot to get their um, their membership and to get their tickets for the year. So it's almost like it comes with the territory. We got told. Look, they pay good money, so they can tell you it's just different um, over there. You've just got to learn to to cop it. You take it in and just let it go, or yeah. you agree with them. But no, they're they're really respectful. They they're great over there. Like, um, 
And if you're trying to learn the language and you speak a little bit mm. um, in press conferences, they start to embrace you a bit more. Yeah, nice. Mate, you know, you just mentioned Johnny Wilkinson. When you first came into to grade, you, you played outside of Larkham. Two totally different number 10s. How long did it take for that kind of combo to start gelling? With Johnny, um, a while because he he wouldn't even play. I don't know if you know much about the Barbarians rugby team. Uh, Bits and uh, pieces, basically yeah. Basically an invitational team. Yep. It's an invitational team. Uh, you just invite players, test players from all around the world just for one team and you'll play a test against a nation. Mm. But your basic preparation is you drink for four days, <laughs> then you've got your captains run the day before, <laughs> and then you play the test. It's just a bonding week. Yeah. Um, he wouldn't play that because – the preparation wasn't good enough and he felt that he's setting himself up for failure because everyone expects this level from Johnny Yeah, and if he doesn't play well, they're going to think less. Yeah, It was just how, how he operated. So uh, it took a while for me to gain his trust. If I saw the winger, the open winger, if he was up flat and I saw backspace to kick back left, I'd say Johnny back left. But before that he'd seen the right side was open. Yeah. The picture had changed within that phase, but it just took him time to actually trust my call rather than him looking and seeing it himself. Um, but once we, we got that trust, like uh, it could have been maybe five games, you, you're playing for a while, you're calling things and uh, it didn't come. But then once he trusted you, like it just opened up our game so much more. Yeah. Did you get to kick much? Because obviously he's a noted kicker. Did he? Did you have to kick much at all? There was uh, no, like I was just a backup. If there was times when he wasn't hitting him well, which is very rare, yeah, uh, he would ask me to kick, which yeah. again was very rare because he doesn't want to look like he's passing the responsibility. Like if he's not kicking well, it's his job to kick well. Yeah. Um, but you knew then that after the game, he'd have a lot of mental demons like passing the kick on to me, but he did what he thought was best for the team. But no, I didn't kick much. I think... Having Johnny open my game up so much more because he's so structured mm. and he would nail our game plan, keep it simple and get us in the areas we need to be and I would just play eyes up. I'd look for opportunities and I could just float around and, and just play um, play footy basically. I didn't have to worry about controlling the team or getting us in the right area yeah. because Johnny would do that. You know, you played in Japan as well. You know, France, Japan, you know, obviously started your career in Australia, you know, the bond between Aussie boys is strong, as we know. You've just talked about the bonding sessions, but mm. between the boys of different nationalities, especially in those two countries, what's it kind of like in terms of trying to build a culture and then also forming relationships with people from outside of your own culture? Yeah, I think the the biggest thing is you you can't try and change what they do to what you're used to in Australia. Mm. So the best bit of advice I got was from Matty Henjak before I came over to Toulon, and he said. Don't expect this to be like Australia. Just take it for what it is and you'll enjoy your time so much more. So the meeting could be at 12 o'clock, but at the front, the coach is still on the phone at 10 past 12 because mm. he's talking to his missus about getting groceries or something like it was just in France. It is what it is. Yes. They just buy that all the time. <laughs> um, Japan, it's another ball game altogether. Like they're very strict on time, very rule based. Um, so you just you just do what they do and you and you try and go and drink with the boys or go have coffee with them, yep. try and pick up a couple of little jokes, find out what they're into. Uh, I think the biggest thing is just trying to embrace the culture and embrace that country. And then once you do that and they see that you're there for the right reasons rather than just taking a paycheck, yep. then, then they want to – they'll play for you as much as you're going to play for them. Yeah. In terms, you know, Sun, Sun Tory, where is that near, anywhere near Tokyo? What's the main sort of capital? Yeah, it's in Tokyo. It's in Tokyo. But over there you play for, yeah, so you play for companies. So there's Toyota, Sun Tory, Panasonic. Um, so you don't actually play for a region or an area. Mm. You, you, they're privately owned. Um, and ours was a whiskey company, or alcohol, <laughs> beers and, and whiskey. So it sounds great. Freebie? We don't get no freebies. We, we don't get it. No. <laughs> no, no, no. It goes to they're a big company because uh, and a good business because they don't give too much away. Yeah, they um, they pay you to play and that's it. You want whiskey, you got to buy it. So how did you know after the passion of Toulon, 
seeing Western Force get off the ground and then also the passion of ACT Brumbies fans, like is there a supporter base? Like what's that sort of things like? Um, that's where it's tricky, I think, because you could have someone that drinks Suntory but drives a Toyota. Okay. So, <laughs> and they're two, you know, they're, they're two companies that are rivals. So, yeah. Yeah. I think it's after the World Cup, we got really big crowds just because they're supporting rugby and Japan did so well at the World Cup. But before that, my first game when I got there, I'm warming up and there's maybe 800, 900 people which sometimes for training in the big times at Suntory, we would move to our main stadium just yeah. so the crowds could come watch us train. Um, and I'm just feeling like, what am I doing? Like, how can I get up for this game? Yeah. But then I think once you kick off and you get hit or um, you hit someone, you kind of you, you get competitive and you get back into it. But that first first year in particular was really hard. From that point of view, yeah. you, you had to self-motivate a lot more, whereas at Toulon you knew there were people there you had to be on because they're all judging you, so you've, it was easier to motivate. Mm. You were there by yourself too, yeah? At Yeah, the second and third year I stayed in – well, I was in Japan by myself yeah. just because my eldest boy – both my boys were born in France, mm. but my eldest, he um, couldn't speak English. Okay. Like his English was really bad. And he wouldn't like listening to French. So as normal, like parents, you worry about it and you're thinking, oh, we've got to get him back to Australia. Yeah. He would point and see the ocean and go, look, 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 look. Yeah. So when I'm dropping him off to creche, his daycare, I've got to tell the teacher, as embarrassing as it is, look, if he asks for a little, little, he wants some water, so <laughs> just give him a drink of water. Yeah. It's just, it was, it was getting to a point where you start to worry. Um, so, yeah, the second and third year they came back here. Um, and lived in Australia, and now like they're fine. Like you pick it back up, but it's just as a parent you worry. So oh, that's why would. I did the second and third year by myself. Yeah, nice. All right, let's wrap things up on a couple of rapid fire ones, Maddie. First one. Now yep. you played with so many legends throughout your career, mate. Was there one that you played against that you didn't get to play with that you would have liked to? Probably Dan Carter. Yep. I think didn't get a chance to always played against him, competed against him. So. Would have been nice to play with him. Yeah. What was kind of like for him? Like what what was his, you know, on the field when you're playing against him, looking at him, kind of what are you seeing? Oh, he's always pretty composed. Um, yeah, confident, I think. But they had, you, you got so many dangers when you're playing the All Blacks that you don't, I don't know, when you're looking at them, you don't look at them that way. It's almost like you know from their setup how they're going to play, what the, generally they're – their habits, what they're going to do. So you're looking for that. Mm. Um, but he was always pretty confident, composed. He seemed nothing really phased him much. So, yeah, he always had a bit of time with the ball. Okay. Now, is there a player that sticks out today that you would have liked to have played with back in the day? Um, gee, I'm, I, didn't, I didn't finish too long ago. So yeah. do, you, do you watch much guys, footy? Um, but, you know, I know you watch a lot of league. But... I, watch, I watch a lot of – yeah, I watch a lot of league. Um, I haven't caught a great deal of the Super Super Rugby this year just because um, I've been playing club um, and I've been watching a lot of rugby or doing rugby uh, throughout the week. By the time I hit the weekend, I just want to watch AFL or, or league and get away from it a bit. Yeah. Um, and I'm really enjoying the way league goes at the moment, like with the new rule changes. So, Mate, yeah. I mean, good. I still love the Brumbies, still support them, but I just haven't seen as many games as I'd like. Yeah, mate, how good? Your old rival, Sonny Bill, back against your Raiders this Saturday. Yeah, yeah, green machine all the way. Yeah, maybe they should they should recruit you, mate. That would go off. Sonny Bill versus Matty Guido in league. We're, the, we're totally different levels. You look at Sonny, he's, um, yeah, I mean, he's just, he's big for the game. Everyone's talking about it. Um, yeah, no, he's a different level, that bloke. Yeah. He, Unreal athlete, but just as far as a, a standing goes, like he's just global, like superstar. Yeah, and, you know, on and off the field, just a gentleman as well. So he's a great ambassador yeah. for the sport. So absolutely good to see him back. All right, Matty, final question. It's my dinner party question. Yeah. You got five invites yeah. to a private dinner party. Now, only rules: no yeah. family or friends, but you can invite anyone, dead or alive. Who would you like to invite to dinner? Ooh, dead or alive. I think Michael Jackson, like I've always been a big fan of his. Okay. Um, and also like 
there's a couple of documentaries that have come out. I, I assume at this dinner party you can, you've got to let everyone know what's going on, your life. Mate, it's your rules. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we'll throw that in. Um, off the back of the last dance, like Michael Jordan. Yeah. He's just um, he's unreal. Freak, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, who else have we got? A couple of other. I reckon Hugh Hefner would have, have a few stories to tell. Yeah. Did the, um, did the Wallabies ever go to the Playboy Mansion? No, I don't know. No? Uh, well, I don't know. They didn't under my time, that's okay. for sure. <laughs> well, we were never in America. You never played a game there. They needed so to have an they exhibition. They really nation. Yeah, that's where the Barbars could have played. That's what you should, um, that's what you should do. I don't know. That's a tough yeah. one. Probably be those two. Yeah, okay. Those two were my biggest, um, probably the ones that I really loved when I was young, like, um, and then you can't have family or friends. I mean, the other leaguers I look up to or that knew from a young age, I kind of I spoke to and I, I've got to know. Okay. Um, I reckon Matty Johns would be a fair, yeah, fair man to have at a party. He'll yeah. keep, he'd keep it rolling. Have a few beers with you, uh, for sure. Then I'd probably just invite my, invite my pop or my uncle. To share it um, with you. Who were dead, so yeah, bring yeah. them back and have a chat. Okay, good party, I know they're mate. family, but I can't ah, think of anything else. You can break the rules, mate. All good. Matty, really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. Before I let you leave, get following Matt, Instagram, Matt underscore Giddo, Twitter, Giddo underscore Rugby, and check out his wine range, blackbacklinewines.com.au. And that, guys, was Matt Giddo. Definitely give him a follow across all his social medias on Instagram and Twitter, and definitely check out Backline Wines as well. It's going off at the moment. All right, next week on the show, it's a bit of a surprise. I've got a few up my sleeve. It's going to be a league legend. So I'm working on something this week, something that's been requested for a long, long time. So it's a little bit out of the blue, but uh, it's a good one. It's, yeah, I won't spoil it too much. If you like today's episode, please share it with your family and friends. You can tag me on any post, Facebook, Twitter, I'm at Talking with TK. Tristan Nell on my Instagram. If you want to get in touch, probably the easiest way, Tristan at TalkingWithTK.com or just direct message me across all the different social medias. Today's episode was brought to you by Manscaped, so check out the range at Manscaped.com. You can use code TK for 20% off and also free delivery. My book, Talking With Champions, that's out now, so check out the, check it out at Booktopia, Angus and Robinson, Dimmicks. Retail is between 20 and 30 bucks, so it's good for a present or even for yourself, just to get you through this little tough period that we're going through at the moment. All right, guys, hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'm Tristan Cannell, and this was Talking with TK. 